Welcome to the People Analytics and Future of Work podcast with Al Adamson. Hi, welcome back. I'm here with a longtime friend, colleague, Ian Cook from Vizier. Ian, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks, Al. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for having us for the show today. Oh, of course. Now, you all have been front and center with what's going on with COVID-19 and the response to it. For those who don't know, you mind introducing yourself as well as a little bit about Vizier? Yeah, sure. So my background, long-standing OD consultant from way back, about 15 years ago, got really hooked by the whole notion of using data to prove that the people practices, the way HR functions actually made a material difference to business. So that, that trajectory took me through building a benchmarking business, I joined Vizier close to eight years ago. For Vizier, I lead the what we call the solution side. So it's the domain side. How do we take the questions that HR people need to answer, align that up to the data, actually build those insights into our technology. So being part of helping steward that Vizier to the position it has today. Yeah, I'm going to say this in all humility. I, I look back at your career, I look back at my career, and I, I think we're like close in terms of where we were. And I see your trajectory and I see mine. <laughs> I just know <laughs> what I'm saying is that you have stayed with the data and really become one of the world leaders in understanding how data is put together, organized, and in turn democratized throughout an organization. And what you're doing right now with the COVID-19 data and bringing that to your clients so they can make smart decisions. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. And it has done not only good for executives, it's done good for the workers within those enterprises. So if you would, can you just speak what you've been doing, you know, over the past, you know, couple of months, say, you know, in response to what's been happening? For sure. And thank you for the, <laughs> thank you for the view, Ali. I think you do a lot to bring that knowledge to the masses. So, uh, you know, we can debate on the trajectories there. <laughs> right. Sounds um, good. But we kind of run through three phases. We, we knew as soon as the kind of lockdown started in Italy that this virus was spreading and we were, we were in, business was in for some kind of crisis phase. So we looked at, you know, what are the decisions that need to be made? And very quickly, the decisions are, where do I have people? What's the state of the virus relative to those people? And what actions should I take? Should I start remote working? Should I prepare for remote working? Do I have people who are restricted by travel? There's, there were some very, very immediate, clear decisions to make. So we did a, a very rapid cycle, literally, we kind of did in about three weeks, what typically would take us three months to do, where we found a source of COVID-19 data. We vended that into our platform so that people can look at how many people do I have? What's the case volume and increasing case volume in those locations? We also then added properties, ways of describing employees to say, this person is travel restricted, this person can remote work, this is potential productivity impact. So this person's 80% effective working from home. As many of you have seen in some of the surveys, people are 120% effective working from home. Like there's a few people who will, you know, when, when the offices do open back up, they'll say, hey, no, I get more done from home. So, you know, getting that kind of insight to say, how is this change in our environment, you know, impacting the business? What actions do I need to take to, to, to do people first, economic second? And I really applaud Josh for, I don't know if he, I first heard it from him. So I think it is kind of came out of his mouth first, but people first, economic second. And we went into this whole thing that way. So we did all that work without consideration for what it would cost us or what we would want to ask from our clients. We did, we did it, we shipped it, we made it as available as we could. And so that was kind of phase one. 
Good for you. And it speaks to the values of your organization and you personally having known you for a number of years. It's not surprising that you all have taken stance and not only from a verbal point of view, from an actual, okay, we're going to do something about it and we're going to push it out. And, and you've done that. So if I might ask you, because I'm tempted to say, okay, where are you now? Because I know you have an approach. So you can speak to the approach or if you would just entertain me for a second. If I'm listening to you, I'm like, fantastic that you have that data and are enabling it to go out to a set of leaders so they can make informed decisions. There are others going, I don't have that. You know, I've been asking for something like that, you know, for years. It's kind of my dream to have that. So I have this position that given what's happening with this global health crisis, that the need for platforms that are agile, that can consume data, analyze data, publish data, are now a non-negotiable, that those organizations that don't have it are at a competitive disadvantage and they're going to potentially suffer more during this crisis because they're going to have more uncertainty, more ambiguity. They're, in some cases, flying blind. So you know, what's your thinking around that? Do you agree? I imagine you do, given who you work with, but you know, can you speak to that a bit? I can speak to that really clearly, Alan, on, on two very uh, tangible fronts. The first is the a lot of what was featured in the People Analytics channels, John Hawkins' data. You know, I, I lost count of the number of remakes of the mapping capability or work to integrate that data into my interior dashboard, my, my homemade tools. And one of the things that is really differentiating is like when you build these things yourselves, you use whatever your tool set may be. You know, there's a kind of common data source and some visualization software, and it's your people doing that. You basically own all of the challenge of maintaining it. What what we found, and we've and we've moved off the John Hopkins data because of this. It was always our intent, but when we first started supplying that through to our end users, every day two of our data scientists spent four to six hours finding errors, finding corrections, uh, adjusting our data pipeline and our visualization output because of changes to the John Hopkins data. Now, in the Vizier world, that was two data scientists to 4,000 tenants. So, you know, a consumption volume in the five to 6,000 people looking at it on a daily basis, if not more. When you run that as your own people analytics group who own and manage and build their own products, then those are two data scientists you're paying just to sustain that thing for your business like the the orders of magnitude of efficiency of your know, provision like what do you want to invest your money in are, are huge the second piece was the, the, the massive interest that was you know we've in, we have a partner channels with some of the name consulting firms and again their interest to say yeah you know our customers are looking for this you guys can stand it up in a matter of weeks we would never be able to build it that fast for them can we go to market together that's a phase that we've actually run with a couple of those organizations. So it really speaks to when, when a platform, Vizier's platform is built from raw data load through to delivered insight secure, everything talks to everything and our technology understands itself. So you're not stitching somebody else's ETL tool with somebody else's data structure, with somebody else's visualization tool, trying to work out how to manage security in somebody else's server build. It's all end to end. And that is that is the platform and that is the differentiation that you're starting to see. 
So with what you just shared, I now can allocate these to actually facilitating change within the organization, kind of the, the last mile of people analytics, which so many organizations have struggled with. It's like, okay, I have all this insight and buried until no one, and it's like, you know, what, what am I getting? What I'm hearing is that this is a different level of focus where I can actually look at the change component and trust you all to provide the data in a way that's consumable to a broad audience. Is that right? It is. And I, and I think that's another piece of sort of the secret source of Vizier. It's certainly something that I invest a ton of time thinking about. So, you know, lots of the charts showed the number of cases. Great. But actually what you need to look at is the rate of change of cases, and that, which is a calculation you have to do on top. And then what we also did was bring in population, because if you're looking at how is this case spreading, it is massively driven by the number of people in one place. You know, if you looked at the case volumes for the, the cruise ships, you're like, oh, 200 people, who cares? Yeah, but it's 200 people out of 1,000. Like, it is 25% of the entire population. <laughs> That's why it was so scary. Again, New York, lots of people, big case volumes. Is it scary? Is it not? As we've looked at the what we call a case ratio. So the, it's a medical approach where you look at the population, you look at about the number affected and you're, you're trending down to one so that you know once you hit one, everybody's infected. It allows you to spot that herd immunity point. When you start to look at that and you compare New York to New Jersey to Louisiana, you know, New York's the one that's in the, the limelight, but Louisiana was showing all the signs of problems before that it got in the media. It's that additional data, it's the thought to how do we curate a metric for an answer, not just present a nice chart. Again, our mantra at Vizier is like, a chart's a chart, we want answers. And so th that's where the platform, again, helps to differentiate. So with that in mind, you're not only providing the data, you can provide a narrative on top of the data from a, a macro sense, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And then ways to, to you know, do the comparison, understand what that comparison means, link that back to employee data. I can't remember where I read it recently somewhere and it, it struck me as like, yeah, of course. And it's this you know, single data model for people data. Like that's mm -hmm. literally what Vizier is. I can look at things from where the lead source that somebody was recruited from all the way through to their score on their exit survey, as well as vending in the learning that they've done on the way. And so you, when you have that single data model, attaching new nodes and driving insight out of that becomes very, very straightforward, as opposed to having to continually architect a new stack for a new answer every time. So there's leverage in the platform is really <laughs> what it comes down to. Given what you're sharing, if we can go back to the phases, you mentioned you're looking at all this as a, a phased approach. Can, can yeah. you explain that a bit? Sure. So we've named the phases. And I've seen a few different names. It's more about understanding and helping people navigate a journey, but there's, there's React. And, and that was the first phase we focused on is how do we help people make instant adjustments to their business to cope with the radical change? And it was, it was very rapid. The next phase we sort of respond, which is about stabilizing and engaging your business. You know, some businesses, the spectrum of impact has been massive. Right today, Amazon is hiring another 75,000 people. Macy's had to follow all of their employees. Like that's about as far apart as it gets. <laughs> yeah. So how do you then adjust your business to run in this new constrained state? Looking at who is essential. Lots of organizations would typically track critical, which is critical to strategy. Like my business needs this rule in order to be differentiating. Essential is like I need these people to keep the lights on, to keep the, the process, the operation, the, the work flowing out. We have a group called SRE, Site Reliability, 
they basically maintain our sort of 99.9% uptime. Those are essential employees in our world. If we don't have those, we don't function. And so lots of organizations, again, started to understand how much work volume do I have? Who is essential? How do I start to find that balance? Where can I reduce spend, negotiate spend, negotiate pay such that we can manage our cash for as long as we need? Knowing that this was literally, this has a time frame. We have a, we've had a pandemic in the last 100 years. We have data from that pandemic. The window is, is finite. It's, we're not living this way forever, but we don't quite know how long we're living this way. So preservation of cash becomes key. And doing it so in such a way that you aren't harming people, like people who've made knee-jerk reactions just to, to kick out their staff without any consideration for their recovery are, are going to suffer on the, way, on the way through this. I can guarantee that. Yeah, absolutely agreed. And yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, and as we were talking recently, you mentioned that different companies are going through this phases at different paces, even though we're all dealing with the same macro situation. There's some who are more agile who want to get back to a, a new normal, whatever that might look like for them. And there's still others who are just kind of in the weeds of, of, of what's happening. Can, can you speak to that dynamic and also those companies that you're working with that are doing well, that seem to be resilient? What are some maybe common attributes that they are expressing? The ones who are doing well, I would say, have, have really strong people analytics groups who, you know, in our frame of reference would be customers who use the data daily, have got it broadly distributed. They're kind of on top of their practice. Like These are the decisions we make with people data. It's socialized out to at least line management, if not beyond. And so all of them brought that kind of curiosity and what does this mean for my business instantly to the question. And so they've been engaged, some were instantly engaged in reorganizing who did what work. And I have to stay fairly high level so I don't give away information I'm not supposed to. So who who can do what work? You know, if if there's locations where there are shut down, can that be moved to somewhere else? If there's work that we were doing that we don't need to do anymore, can those people go elsewhere? So so the groups I've seen do really well have again, they've taken up people first. So if they've needed to Reduce staff counts, it's always been in a way that maintains somebody's benefits and let people benefit to the max from whatever other support systems were in place, or they've kept on to their people and simply redistributed the work so that you know people are doing new roles on temporary loans. Like there's been a lot of that shuffling around of who did what. And then they've been able to keep that steady flow of, you know, whenever somebody said, Well, who do we have? Where is it? Yes, we have it. Who do we have? Where was kind of that first question. And if this group were seen as the de facto place for that answer and seen it as a trusted source of that answer, then they instantly got brought into the conversation about how do we respond to this and, and became kind of central to those decision points. Um, what do you see the frequency of those communications being? And just to put a finer point on it, I have seen over the years in working with people analytics leaders through Insight 222 and before that in a variety of forums, is that there was always the struggle to get seat at the table. And now there are tools like Vizier, like we're at the table, but it sometimes would be once a quarter, it would be part of a strategy formulation process. Now it's like every week. Is, is that what you're seeing? And, and is it, is it every day. <laughs> yeah, every day. It's just going to create a new leadership or management dynamic, data-driven decision-making. Do you see this perpetuating in other words? I do. Anecdotally, we've had feedback from numerous CHROs who are customers saying, you know, I liked Vizier before, I, I love you now, 
Now, I, for the last week, I've been in a room with our executive every day, being able to pull up the answers we needed to navigate. So it wasn't, uh, you know, let's go and present the information once we can and leave others to work on it. Like they have been live working on the answer to the, the business through insight into the people. And they'd already earned access through the prior work. And this is one of these things that there's no magic button. You, you have to earn access. You have to demonstrate, even through simple things like, we actually now have accurate headcount. We now have standardized turnover reporting. We've now got some insight around risk of exit that will help the business save money. Like they are little and kind of they're known things and those things earn you access. Then a crisis like this comes along and woof, the door is open. It's like, can you help? Yeah, you bet. And so it, it yeah. elevates for those who are ready, it, it elevates. But I think there is a follow on like for those who, who weren't ready, then like I think they will be getting ready. Job number one will be, you know, we needed a better analytics practice. That's exactly what the question I want to ask. And this is certainly going to seem self-serving, a softball question, but I'll, I'll take the risk. Because like you, over the years, I know you've heard, oh, we'll do that after we implement X solution. You know, we'll, we'll get to it. It's part of our roadmap. And that is perpetually a low priority. It's, it's thought of after the fact. And you and I, again, have known each other for years, and we are evangelists for thinking about your data and analytics strategy before you select these systems and thinking, you know, beginning with the end in mind. So what would you say to those who have, for lack of a better way to put it, procrastinated or pushed this back? What's your business case now, you know, here in, you know, April, May, 2020? It's really, really simple. Like, what did your transactional system vendor do for you to answer the questions through the COVID pandemic? They store data, they run workflows, they manage data process, and they are transactionally necessary. They, they do not materially help you to run the business. They do not materially help you to drive strategy. And, you know, that's what HR has always quested to do. It has moved massively forward in my lifetime. And, you know, the opportunity for it to continue to move forward is through the the data, the analytics, the insight about how to do this well. I mean, just, just a quick example. Again, I'll be very vague about industry, but we know that certain organizations came out with, you know, we should let go of these people. The analytics groups were very, very quick to be able to point out that, you know, natural attrition will actually take care of it. And so they saved the business, the reputational risk, they saved the dent and the pain of the pink slick circulation by being able to demonstrate in the data that, you know, just wait two weeks and the resignation rate that we would expect will actually take care of what you're planning to do. So really right at the heart of running the business in the same way as the CFO is. And, and we know, I think what, what this will do is, first of all, is highlight the importance. Second of all, it will spread the stories of why it's important. And that should put it high on the CEO agenda, yeah. which then drives action. Just to put it in different terms that might be maybe not more palatable, but just a different way to put it, is there are systems that are data through process flows, potentially through surveys or, or what have you, but the ability to stage and analyze that data is a different, oftentimes requiring a different tool, yet not many HR leaders, business leaders grew up through analytics, whether it be a technology perspective or research perspective, and they just don't know what they don't know. Yes. I think a lot of that pain is now being highlighted. Can you speak to that a little bit? Are we now getting to a point where, oh gosh, 
now I know the distinction between an analytics tool and a transaction-based process tool. I can speak to it. Uh, whether or not we've, we've got a differentiation clear, I think that's the opportunity of this particular event is to really clarify the difference. People, people often understand it when they see it, but they don't necessarily understand why it's the case. I have a very simple model. When you have a transactional system, it's optimized for read-write. So when you write data, you basically stack the data on top of itself. So my job title was this, now it's this, now it's this, now it's this. So if you think of data as a stovepipe, as a column, when you look to analyze data, what we're doing is staging it over time. Like we're actually taking the data and making it a completely different shape. I want to see how long it took from Ian to go from job title one to job title two. So that's not in the column. That you have to read across time to understand that. So automatically to do analytics, even, even where the analytics is part of the vendor solution set, they are taking it out of the source database, putting it into another data structure in order to read across it. So the realization that analytics is a specialist distinctive practice and that you need both, certainly more prevalent than when we started. <laughs> Richard Rosenow actually did a fantastic article recently that really described the reasons behind it well. If you haven't read it, I'm sure you have, but I would yeah. recommend it. <laughs> it. I'm sure you have. I had an early draft. He sent it over to me. I said, okay. Richard, you just took my Sunday, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> but, but this is a dissertation. No, but it is definitely worth a read. It, it, it is. And I'm it, sure he'll appreciate the shout out as well. It really clearly articulates that the, the, you need this backbone for your analytics practice and that 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 is as i mean in my mind it's more powerful than the, the transactional system but it's in in reality it's as powerful as a transactional system and and yeah, yeah. thinking you get both with one is nobody has yet shown over 20 years that they're able to put those two things together well yeah and a key thing that you said is over time because data structures do change and then mapping multiple data sets that structure and make it work is not an easy task. So then it invites the question, do you want to do that as part of your, your core business or do you want to partner with somebody who's very proficient at, at that? So I would pick the latter, but I don't own the budget and you know all these companies. So just to toggle a bit, I want to go back to react, respond, and recover. How are you, are, so you're helping guide the, your clients on maybe how to do that. I don't imagine everyone has a process, but you are bringing a process to the fore to say, hey, this might be a way for you to, to think about it. Is that the essence that, of it? That is exactly the essence, yeah. So in, in, our, in our respond phase, we, we looked at sort of essential employee and we looked at remote work in survey score. So hesitant on the word engagement, it's more really checking in on your staff who are whose only connection with people is through a, a video call and actually making sure that you know, they're, they're supported, they understand things and being able to use that kind of insight about people over time. So that, that's, we've advocated, again, we have the capacity to handle those. We've advocated for those practices as a respond phase. Where we're going next is recover. And, and that's, the media are starting to talk about it, but it's really about spotting the peak. You know, when, when are the indicators such that we know we've hit the peak of this first wave of the, the virus proliferation? And then what is the glide path out? We've got a bunch of examples. We have Italy as an example. We'll have Spain soon. We have Wuhan as an example. So you can start to see the, the time windows of the glide path out. And that's when you're preparing to, business is not going back to normal. Business is going back to something else. But that's when you're 
preparing for that, the new context of business that we're working in. We're focusing on, you know, spotting the peak and understanding what that means. Correct me if I'm wrong, you're helping spot the peaks in certain geographies where a company is operating, therefore they can ascertain the risk and approach to get yes. people back to work. Is that right? Yeah, that's a much better way of putting it, Al. We, it's, there is not one peak. There's a peak for New York, there's a peak for California, there's a peak for Italy. They, they are many in, in different locations. And that I think when you're running a global business, that's particularly difficult. You, you, you can't have a vanilla policy that's the same for Spain as it is for British Columbia, let's say. I don't want to make light of what's happening right here, right now. We're at April 14th, you know, many regions in the world, New York here in the US being a very prominent example, are, are struggling. And at the same time, there are organizations who are thinking about getting back to work. And so they're entering the recovery phase. So my, my pointed question, as you identify these different peaks you know, around, where are people, analytics leaders, and HR going to focus their energy moving forward, particularly from a data perspective? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, so, so my thoughts are very much about how do you reestablish the business and looking at mix of who does what, the sort of the digitization of work has accelerated, as we know. Who comes back first? Who comes back second? Who stays working from home? Like the, we, we have this opportunity to not just going back to doing work the way we've always done it because we always did, but actually relayer the work in the organization. So there's a, there's a lot of really interesting questions around how do you do that effectively? Like we've seen a huge demand for skills data. We have a partnership with a, a skills capture group, and we know that they are inundated with questions. Because people are starting to look at like, well, who can do what? <laughs> and what exactly. else could they do? And, and how yeah. else could I use them? And so really breaking this, what I've often, ex we've probably experienced for the last 20 years is like job title hiring. Well, you were the VP of sales, so you should be able to be the VP of sales. Right. We, we, we're slowly moving past this. And I feel like we might be accelerating past this so that the VP of sales is seen as a as a set of skills and an individual capable of being so much more than just another VP of sales. Not that there's a bad role, but you know, the, the individual's capability is looked at more broadly with a more agile mindset. So I am certain there are a lot of groups thinking about that. Some will be thinking more just about how do I get my volumes back up? How do I rebuild my system? And who comes back first, second, third? But I think there's, a, there's an opportunity to either experiment with restructuring the organization or, or rethinking bits of how work gets done to accelerate the digitization. I'm so glad you went there because that's where my head was and it validates my thinking. <laughs> no. well, we, at least, we at least agree with each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I do mean it in this way. If organizations aren't thinking about not only organizational agility from kind of enterprise level, but team agility. So what adjacent skills can be leveraged in new and creative ways. So individuals sometimes are going to make that decision. Sometimes organizations are going to make investments in training and, and role reallocation, if you will, to help facilitate that. But if an organization does that without data, they're guessing, correct me if I'm wrong, your ability to curate that is invaluable if you're going to think about different scenarios of how the work is going to not only look in a static state in September 2020, but ongoing. So how do you think about that? How do you coach your clients on how to leverage skills-based data and other data 
or optimal value. Maybe I'll give you an example of things that people are thinking about that, that need to be slightly where we've repositioned. So lots of people are thinking of planning by skill. And so they'll, they'll look at the skill and say, I need X number of hours or Y number of hours. And so they, they think of that atomic level activity. There's a the very tiny piece. We know from our experience that what that runs into is the, is the reconciliation problem. I still need a person to execute that skill. Like I, it's, skill is not abundant and I can't just pull somebody off the shelf to do it when I need them. So if you just purely focus on the skill without focusing on the fact that a human being needs to be there to do it, you end up with you know, a demand for skills that looks like it's one person, but physically they're in the wrong place, time-wise they're synchronous. And so you end up with gaps in your plan because actually I needed four people to do this on one day as opposed to one person to do this on four days to, to make yep. it very simplistic. Scale out over 100,000 people and you have chaos. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> um, That's a good point. It's really still coaching people to think about task or work packet is often a combination of skills. So, so skills is an important input, but then it still has to be thought of as a person executing something. You know, we make software. The, the notion that somebody could just plug into our system and suddenly write code it is completely impossible. There is so much history. There is so much structure. There are so many things to learn about how our software is written that you know it, it's a two-month ramp for anybody. So this notion that we can go and say, oh, well, you can write Scala quick. We'll plug you in for this two-week sprint and then plug you out because we don't need you. It's wrong thinking. It makes the problem too simple. So one of the coachings is, yes, skill is important. Certainly think of a person as beyond their job title, but, but never forget that somebody has to sit in front of something to do the work. So you're, you're blending those two things as opposed to going 100% skew towards just the skill. Yeah, we can talk about that for another half hour, half day. What I want to do as we start to wrap up is actually talk about this, is that as we get into the recovery phase, there are organizations that, as we talked about earlier, don't have capability. So they then might be saying, okay, I need something. And how then, but I'm spending X dollars over here on this system and, you know, I'm, you know, that's there. I can't change it. Why should I prioritize budget to get Vizier or something similar? It's you know, why now is it a priority? I mean, we've answered that to an extent, but what's your answer, you know, in, in summary, because I have all this energy and we know why I think ourselves, but I don't think a broad audience really understands that this is, again, a non-negotiable. Yeah. So a couple of things to put in, in terms of practice. So a couple of our consulting partners have actually changed their practice to put in analytics first. And the reason they're doing that is so they can see the data, they can see the structure. Like, What are the very first thing that you do when you put in any kind of new transactional system? You take what you've got and you look at it. So, so why wouldn't you do that in an analytics platform? Because A, you get history. So again, often we've, we've had Vizier purchased purely on the avoiding the cost of bringing history to the new system. We're orders of magnitude less than doing that for, for many implementations. And then the second piece is that de-risking the transactional system implementation. Again, they are often multi-month, multi-million dollar processes. I know of at least two implementations on each of the kind of preeminent systems where 
after two years, people are thinking of taking them out again because they think they got it wrong. And so why wouldn't you have an analytics play in place to stop you getting it wrong? When you look at the spend for analytics compared to the spend for a new transactional system, this becomes an insurance policy. Very simple math for a CFO. I spend 1% to avoid risk on the 100%. Bring it on. I'll do that every day. That is the, you know, anybody who's thinking about putting in the transactional system or is even, you know, in the start phases, doing that math and understanding it, how it reduces your risk is, is it's massive. And again, we can point at a number of instances where we've helped with that. And we've had people stop their implementations because they started to recognize they were doing it wrong. So, you know, real stories. So that, that for me would be that, that compelling case. So just to summarize that, a data and analytics strategy should ideally precede a technology strategy. Is, is that a fair way to summarize it from your perspective? Yeah, a transactional strategy. Like it should precede a transactional strategy. There's a hat for my son. Isn't that great? Thank you, Alistair. That's outstanding. Hi, Alistair. That was outstanding. <laughs> If you're going to implement a new HRIS or something like that, then you know analytics strategy would precede that, so that you taking the risk out. Again, we you know our estimates are twenty thousand person org is going to spend ten to fifteen million dollars putting in a new transactional system. If they spent you know one percent or two percent of that on an analytics play to de-risk that whole project, it's it's a no-brainer from a financial perspective. Well. I love what you have to share, and love your energy, love the you know, virtuous stance you all have taken, not only in how you've organized these on the topic of COVID-19 and response to it, but also just the practices that you put in play for your clients. And yeah, on behalf of the community, to the extent that I can, thank you for what you all do as an organization and what you do personally. It's an honor to be working with you. Thank you very much for that. I appreciate it. I will make sure that the team, I, I stand behind an amazing team, so I'm always conscious to reflect that it's not, it's not even just me. It really is like Vizier is quite, it's one of the best teams I've ever worked with. So it is a, it's an honor to, to be able to represent them. Well done again. And are you up there in Vancouver? Where are you hold up these days? I, yeah, I am. I'm hold up in Vancouver, which is, it's not too bad a place to, to be stuck for sure. Enjoy to the extent you can. You be well. Look forward to talking with you soon. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Al. Take care. Thanks for joining the People Analytics and Future of Work podcast with Al Adamson. To find other podcasts, videos, upcoming events, and to join the Global People Analytics Network, please visit us at globalpeopleanalytics.net.